0: an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville, faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Let me begin by saying that I found preparing these comments more challenging than usual. Perhaps it says more about me than it does about the nature of philosophical discourse, though I'm not so sure that's the case, that I find it far easier to to have something to say when I disagree with somebody than when I don't. And I don't, frankly, find myself in any substantial disagreements with Dr. Faser. But fear not. And this comes as no surprise to my colleagues or my students. I did manage to find a few things to say. I'd like to spend some time amplifying the following claim of Faser's. I quote, thus, that the scientific revolution put paid to Aristotelian scholastic physics does not entail that it put pay to Aristotelian scholastic philosophy of nature and natural theology. And in fact, it did not do so." This is, I think, exactly right. And I also think it would be helpful to look at a snapshot of how moderns suppose they have vitiated scholastic Aristotelian philosophy of nature. And rather than considering just any snapshot, Let's look at one from the album of the thinker generally regarded as the father of modern philosophy, René Descartes. In Descartes' second meditation, he provides an experiment of sorts, the results of which have a profound influence, not only on his own work, but on the trajectory of the whole of modern science and philosophy. This experiment involves a bit of wax. The wax in question is held by Descartes and found to be relatively cool, solid, fragrant, and so on. All of these and more qualities are recorded by Descartes' senses. Next, Descartes places the wax near a fire. The wax is transformed. Now it is hot, in liquid form, smells more aromatically, and so on. However, and this is the critical move, Descartes knows with certainty that the wax is the same bit of wax both before and after its heating. Descartes draws three conclusions from this experiment. First, that he knows this to be the same wax by means of the judgment of his intellect alone and not by any of his senses. Second, that the experiment confirms that he knows himself as a thinking thing better than he knows anything external to himself. And third, he claims that the only thing that is really knowable about the wax, as it is in itself, and the only thing that the wax itself is, is merely stuff. That is, that it is extended, flexible, and mutable. He then takes still one more gigantic leap forward into his newly discovered land of false implications, and claims that what goes for the wax goes for everything else that is not a thinking thing. Note now how Descartes has directly set his conclusions against the Aristotelian standards, that all knowledge begins in the senses, that we do not have direct apprehension of the essence of our intellect, and that natural substances are intrinsically organized and ordered towards their ends. Descartes is betting that his audience failed to remember another Aristotelian insight, that although we can learn much about nature through art, since art imitates nature, there is a profound difference between natural and artificial things. Perhaps his audience would not have been so easily duped, although once one wants to be duped, it's hard to listen to reason, if Descartes had run multiple experiments to test his hypothesis. Let's say he moved on from wax to rocks, and from rocks to wood, and from wood to cats. And if you can anticipate where I'm going, um, please accept my apologies, and I don't think you should repeat this experiment at home. It certainly would be cruel. But scientists, remember, need to be dispassionate. So, after capturing his feline friend, Felix, Descartes holds, pets, and smells him. Then he inserts Felix into a cage, and the cage into the fireplace. After a few uncomfortable minutes that make even our feckless researcher squirm, Descartes removes the remains of Felix from the fire. He finds Felix has gone from warm to hot, from soft to gooey, and from cat nippy to char broiled. Is he the same cat? Of course not. What changed? The cat died, and there is no returning him to life. If Descartes had run multiple experiments, a course of action which he recommends other places, by the way, then he would have discovered that there is indeed a vast difference between the the product we know of as wax and the substance we call cat. But of course, Descartes, like you and I, knows this already. His wax experiment is mere smoke and mirrors. The driving point behind the experiment is that Descartes has determined that grasping the nature of material things no longer matters. Science for him is not about knowing material substances and their attributes but about applying mathematical principles to all that extended, flexible, and mutable stuff. Descartes needs to get rid of what Aristotle calls nature, an intrinsic principle of motion and stability, and to rename nature as a field of conquest, that which Descartes tells us in the Sixth Discourse on Method, we are to become masters and possessors of, so that we can, eventually, raise science to such a level that we conquer labor and death. I have spent so much time on Descartes case because it is paradigmatic and because even though Descartes develops rationalism he gives empiricism and the modern experimental sciences their marching orders. So scholastic Aristotelian philosophy of nature was never even paid the compliment of being refuted. It was set aside and at what cost? At the cost of forgetting that science ultimately wants to know the nature of the things it studies. And as phaser has shown us so well, this includes that of forgetting how the study of nature points us if we are eager and ready for the hunt to the study of God. And it is worth repeating, even though phaser himself has just repeated it several times, that his claim regarding the reliance of natural theology on the philosophy of nature and not on modern science is a claim that pertains to the god of classical theism. He admits readily enough that there are legitimate paths to some first thing of a sort from principles found in modern mathematical empirical science. His point, rather, is that none of those paths can lead to that god who is active existence subsisting himself, since finding our way there requires recognizing that all non-God things are mixtures of actuality and potentiality, which are radically, in every respect, everywhere, and throughout their existence, dependent upon that being who is actuality without potentiality, that is to say, God. Now, I feel like it would somehow be remiss of me not to pay Faser the favor. That's quite a turn of phrase, right? Phaser, the favor of giving him a few points that might need some adjustment. I'll mention three. First, I fear that Parmenides did not get his due. It is of course true, as Phaser notes, that Aristotle corrected the error of Parmenides. However, when Aristotle does this in Physics 1.8, he's careful to note that he is nevertheless retaining Parmenides' insights, that nothing can come from nothing and that a thing either is or is not. The point, as Faser notes, is that Parmenides failed to recognize more than one sense of being, and in particular, being in the sense of potentiality and actuality. The reason why I think it is important to stress that Aristotle seeks to retain the fundamental insight of Parmenides is that this case points to the way in which Aristotle approaches science in general. He seeks to cultivate the insights of his predecessors and contemporaries, to test their best hypotheses, and to retain what is worth retaining, albeit oftentimes with significant additions or other alterations. That's a far cry from the habits of some later thinkers to raise, a la Descartes, the whole of past learning to the ground in order to start from scratch, or to achieve that elusive mark of distinction we moderns love so much, namely Originality. The pursuit of knowledge for Aristotle is not a zero sum competition. Rather, it is more like cultivating a family farm, where shared work yields greater returns, which are shared by everyone involved. And, as with farming, one does better to rely on the experiences and wisdom of others who have farmed before. Second, is there hard evidence that Paley really is such a thoroughgoing univocist? I've always taken the mechanism implicit in his watch analogy to imply that God is like a watchmaker but not just like a watchmaker but then I'm no Paley scholar and I'm happy to be disabused of that interpretation. The trouble is I'm not yet disabused of that interpretation. Third, Faser, in his very intriguing Rehabilitation of Barclay rightly shows that a scholastic Aristotelian theory of God finds the connection between God's thinking all beings and God's continually causing all beings. This is absolutely true for Aquinas. My trouble is that it is not absolutely true for Aristotle. Aristotle's God, as far as I've been able to tell, and despite some Neoplatonic interpretations to the contrary, does not think nature. Doing so would be beneath God. God only thinks the best of all things, and that is himself. Nevertheless, Aristotle argues in Metaphysics 12, this god continuously causes the actuality of every being in the universe. Now, I agree with Aquinas' insight. And it is an insight that he draws from his own Neoplatonic roots, particularly relying on pseudo dionysius But the example of Aristotle's position would seem to undermine Phaeser's following claim. Quote, hence to say that matter might in principle exist apart from God's thinking about it would implicitly be to say that matter might in principle exist without God continually causing it to exist. End quote. At the very least, if this is the case, then Faser has discerned an implication of Aristotle's position that Aristotle himself failed to see. In any event, I think it's a point that needs some attention. Thank you. Initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.